Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to Calm History. Com. Hello, well, welcome to Emotional Badass, where Moxie meets Mindful. I'm your host, Nikki Eisenhower, life coach and psychotherapist. And on today's episode, I'm discussing the pitfalls of hypervigilance and outrage in advocacy. episode, I want to start by saying what I'm not saying. I am not saying to not be angry, and I am not saying to bury feelings. I am saying that my definition of an emotional badass is someone who owns the needs of their own nervous system. I am saying that if you are safe and stable and this modern advocacy has you hypervigilant instead of vigilant, You may be exhausted, worn out, bitter, and increasingly distancing emotionally from more and more people. Hypervigilance is a symptom of trauma, and I don't want to talk about it so much in a clinical sense as much as in the emotional sense of what it feels like. Our system, your system, my system, is very, very smart. We are creatures that learn. There is a benefit to that, and there are some problems to that. If I'm working with Becky and Becky was attacked by dogs when she was little and I'm walking my neighborhood with Becky and there's lots of dogs in my neighborhood and I'm an empath, I'm going to see, sense, and feel Becky's hypervigilance. Now, hypervigilance is a hyper-aware lens because Becky's nervous system is so smart It learned that dogs are dangerous and that they can hurt her very badly. So now Becky's body, Becky's system, every time there's a dog is on guard. That seems very, very smart to Becky's body and Becky's system. In fact, it would feel dumb to not be so on guard. It would feel dangerous to not be on guard and just saunter up to a random dog. So Becky's system learned something very important out of that childhood trauma, that a dog can be a dangerous thing and can be hurtful. There's nothing wrong about that. Do you see that? Everything about that is in the category of right. Now, the struggle is that 
if every time Becky's walking the neighborhood, and this is a neighborhood with a lot of dogs, the problem is that she is constantly in an anxiety state. And that is a problem for differentiating between our intuition and our anxiety. Now, that has got to be in the top three of questions that I get from people publicly, um, on the monthly uh, Patreon live streams, in individual sessions, in the boundaries course. It comes up everywhere in my work, working with highly sensitive people and empaths and survivors. Because when we are in hypervigilance, we cannot sense our intuition. Hypervigilance keeps adrenaline pumping in our system. I remember therapists saying this to me in my teens and in my early 20s, that I was hypervigilant. I was constantly aware and it was too much. I could not process what they meant by that. I really could not feel the difference. I didn't understand. I had never felt calm. I had never felt that adrenaline not being in my system. So I just thought this is the way that I am, just like so many of you have told me over the years. No, this is just, I'm pretty sure this is the way that I am. No, 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 no. The stress system relies on two key hormones, adrenaline and cortisol. In the short term, adrenaline works, it pumps. Cortisol has long-term effects. And in North America, adrenaline is also known as epinephrine. So that can be why some of this gets confusing. Having the nervous system in this constant state of arousal means that we can't really pay attention to our bodies because everything looks dangerous. Every dog that we come across, whether it's a block and a half away, whether it's across the street or whether it's walking past us, Becky has the same anxious, hyper-aware response to. What that does is it robs Becky of the opportunity to calm her nervous system and start practicing judgment or discernment about each individual dog. And that is sort of the tragedy of our human systems being creatures that can learn. Because we are creatures that learn, we also globalize. So instead of the story inside of our bodies and our heads being one time this dog attacked me, we globalize in hypervigilance. So every dog is then dangerous. Becky can't feel the difference between her anxiety and her intuition because that anxiety, that adrenaline, that cortisol response that's in her body so constantly doesn't allow her any other information other than danger, 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 dog. There are lots of dogs in the world. That means every dog, even on TV and in a movie, is going to have Becky feeling that. That's not very empowered. And that's the rub with this stuff, guys. It's understanding empathically, oh, of course I have empathy for that, that response in Becky's body. I understand it too. It makes perfect sense. But my goodness, there has to be a different or a better way. As women, we have the collective trauma if we've been attacked or assaulted. And then we have the collective female vicarious trauma of walking the world knowing that we could be attacked by a larger, stronger, overpowering male. 
There's a fine line there to me being a woman walking this earth, being aware, vigilant, keeping my wits about me versus having my nervous system in a state as if I am being or about to be attacked at all moments. And we do this as women. Hopefully, we are not in a constant trauma state of fear, but we are aware. So what if our trauma was being abused by a father and an uncle and their friends? Does it benefit us to globalize and be scared of all men moving forward? If you have experienced racism and it's been traumatic, does it benefit to be scared of that constantly in a hypervigilant state? When we're hyper aware this way, it clouds things. When we're coming out of our wounding, it clouds things. I remember at a job, I was very much trying to get promoted. Never happened. I eventually got laid off. And I used to think that I didn't get promoted because I was female. Now I see it differently. And it may still have been sexism, but I process it differently because I'm not in a hypervigilant state. Now I believe that it's because I, I showed emotion. I'm an emotional being. I can't hide that. Never have been able to. There was a female that was promoted in front of me. But she was very non-emotional, very masculine in how she executed her job. And the men there that promoted her liked that, especially compared to me and my feminine expression of emotion. And I wasn't taken very seriously for it. So was I not promoted for my sensitivity or for my femininity or both? I can't ever really know that. But if I walk the world and each slight that I get, if I put it through the lens of because I'm a woman, it's going to hit that wound and dig that wound deeper. The four agreements teaches us not to take anything personally. That doesn't mean agreeing with everything that happens or thinking everything that happens is right. It means that I don't have to take things personally. What does that mean about me not getting the job? A, it might mean I wasn't the best person for the job and I can be okay with that. It's true and it's real. It's definitely a possibility. But I don't have to take that personally. Even if someone didn't promote me because I was female, that's not because of me. That's because of the other person. But the other person has issues with females and I don't have to take that on. There's a way that we can use mindfulness to observe what's happening so that we don't absorb what's happening as highly sensitive people and empaths and survivors. I absorbed that hurt from that job in those moments. And in doing so, I can look back now and see, oh, I hurt myself more unnecessarily by processing it that way. I didn't know a different way to process it. That was the best I knew how to do. But it certainly didn't serve me. Are we as a society giving people the message that they should feel shameful if they're not hypervigilant or reactive? Is outrage culture supporting hypervigilance? Is outrage culture teaching our youth 
that hypervigilance is right to look for hurt everywhere in a hypervigilant way. Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about pivotal moments in history? If so, then try my new podcast, Calm History. It's a time machine of tranquility filled with immersive and fascinating stories from history. Prior episodes include The Pilgrims, Marco Polo, Henry Ford, Joan of Arc, Jackie Robinson, Klondike Gold Rush, Ancient Greek Olympics, Easter Island, and the Great Pyramid of Giza. There's also a six-part series about the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com. There's a fine line between needing to validate our historic experiences or our current experiences and calming our nervous system so that we may be able to differentiate anxiety from intuition and help ourselves move towards people that feel healthier, responsible, mindful, and away from those that don't. If we can't calm our nervous system enough to start connecting and getting to know our intuition other than our anxiety, how will we ever do that? And I definitely need to talk more about this, but I want to use this episode to name that our emotions can become a drug of choice. And just like with heroin or cocaine or alcohol, few people set out to intentionally have a drug of choice. It just kind of happens. And that can just kind of happen with fear, with struggle, with righteousness, with outrage. Within myself, I try to practice being very careful with doses of fear. Who's trying to give me a dose of fear? Do I accept that? Do I reject that? Do I consider it? I try to be very careful with a dose of anger. Where is that coming from? Is that coming from me internally? Is it coming from me externally? If it, what does someone have to gain if I'm angry? What does someone have to gain if I'm in fear? And I'm not just careful with doses of what we think of as the negative emotions, fear, anger, righteousness, shame. It might even be more important to have a measured response, a mindful consideration of what's good. The propensity for the ego to be a right fighter. Often therapeutically, a therapist might say to a client, would you rather be right or would you rather be happy? That thought wreaked havoc on me for years in my younger self. I'd think, but I am right. It's a fact. What do I do with this? And if you come from a dysfunctional family like I do, many, 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 many dysfunctional families have right fighting inside of it. Taught. It's a vibe. It's a certain heartbeat that beats within dysfunction. And people are very rarely satisfied when they're right fighters. They tend to feel bitter and angry and reactive. 
and they don't understand at the end of an argument with someone or a conversation they're trying to have why they feel so icky, it's because the ego is driving wanting to be right instead of wanting to find solution. Our hypervigilance isn't wrong. It was right for the traumas we experienced directly or indirectly, vicariously. We can have vicarious trauma. But also it's part of our personal responsibility to not absorb vicarious trauma. When someone is coming at me with a message of, well, aren't you outraged? Increasingly, I'm meeting that energy with, no, what does it do for me to be outraged? I care. I'm empathetic. I put a lot of action into how I live and breathe to make the world a better, healthier, brighter place externally. And I start with the internal work with me. No, I will not get outraged. I will not do that to my body. My outrage does nothing for this advocacy. It makes me tired. It makes me grumpy. It makes me irritable. It makes adrenaline run through my body and creates this cortisol response where I can't settle. I can't relax. I can't chill within myself. Why would I do that to myself? And I've heard all the arguments. Well, because this is so horrible and wrong. Correct. Why do I have to feel horrible and wrong in my body because something horrible and wrong is happening, not in this room, not right next to me? I want to react if it's happening around me and with me right now. I want to stay cool, calm, and collected in mind, body, and spirit so that I have my brain power to make decisions. And so that I can remember one of my number one jobs so that I can keep all of my advocacy flowing is to manage and heal and caretake my own nervous system first. And if someone is super upset with me because I refuse to be in outrage, that makes sense. They're outraged. They're going to also be outraged about me. And that is one of the pitfalls of outrage and advocacy. We may be passing outrage around like a drug in this modern society. It's a righteous one. We know that anger is addictive. We've been teaching that for decades and decades and decades in anger management. Just because the reasons seem really good to be outraged doesn't mean that that outrage is not addictive. If you've ever hung out with drinkers and had a moment of, no, I'm just not going to drink today, you know what happens. I've never been in that circumstance with drinkers where I say, hey, I'm not going to have a drink and I don't get offered a drink four, five, six, seven, eight times. You sure you're not drinking? Are you sure? How about this? I'll get you a drink. You sure? When we don't do what someone else is doing, it can make them uncomfortable. When we do what someone else is doing, we validate what they're doing. So when I sit there refusing to be in outrage, I'm invalidating the outrage. Outrage doesn't like that. My nervous system needs that approach. And if you're a fan of the show, my guess is that your nervous system may need something similar, may need more calming than invitation to outrage, may need more centering and deep breath work than the practicing of continued hypervigilance from a very, very old traumatic teaching. 
If the goal is to be a healthy, whole, light-filled advocate and take care of yourself at a deep core level, that's an achievable goal. I don't know if outrage has an achievable goal other than to be more outraged. Know that in all things, you possess the choice. That's what adulting is, that you have the choice. Just like we can order from a menu and choose, believe it or not, highly sensitive people, we can sort of dial into the emotions that we want to feel, that we know are better for us to feel. And we can still do all the nitty-gritty advocacy work that needs doing. We can even do more of it when we keep our priority healing and taking care of this nervous system, this body, this sensitive being that observes and picks up on so much. One of the things I start my boundaries course with is a request to consider that as highly sensitive people, we very well may need more energetic boundaries than the average person. And we may not get all the understanding in the world for that. People don't tend to say, oh, thank you for having a boundary. Thank you for not validating what is unhealthy in me. We don't get that. We can know that. We can understand it. And we can learn how to support ourselves through it. I hope there's something in this episode that helps you navigate this intense year that we've had as it comes to a close. Those of you who very much want to be able to feel your intuition instead of such constant anxiety, this is the stuff. If you feel yourself getting activated, hand on the heart, hand on the belly, just like I do in almost every live stream. Take a deep breath. This is how we rewire, reprogram, and heal our nervous systems. It's always helpful if you want to help the show out to get on iTunes and work that funky iTunes algorithm by giving us a five-star review, writing something out. I'll read it on the show as I do. We love giving you a shout out. But I want you to know that you can share the show from almost anywhere, anywhere that you listen to podcasts, Spotify. The podcast also goes out over YouTube And you can always come on to EmotionalBadass.com to share episodes directly from there. So many of us use different podcast players now. That might be an easier way to share the show than sending a link from your podcast app. If you come play around on our website, one of the things that we have there for you are all of our meditations. From the past two seasons, we'll release season three in the spring. All of our meditations are stripped down. No intro audio, no explanation, no outro music, just pure meditation so that you can play them to fall asleep to, so that you can just loop them and fall asleep and reprogram whatever you need. We wanted to make that available because I find myself wanting that with meditations. Remember that you can care very much about all kinds of things. And still stay peaceful and centered within this one precious mind, body, and spirit that we've each been given. I'm an emotional badass. You're an emotional badass. And together, we are where Moxie meets Mindful. Light and love. Bye-bye.
Would you like to relax or fall asleep while learning about history? If so, then try my podcast, Calm History. You'll learn all about famous explorers, inventions, civilizations, ancient wonders, and even the Titanic. Just search your podcast player for Calm History or go to calmhistory.com.